welcome to The Last We Fake, the podcast of serialized fiction from Los Angeles. I'm your host, Alan Rifkin. Each season, the podcast debuts an original L.A. novel in 12 episodes, along with selected short fiction from West Coast writers, both new and established, whose works take place at the shifting borders of the American dream. Season two's novel, titled Sunland by author, screenwriter, and journalist Charlie Haas, unfolds the brief desert flowering of a group of German expressionist artists, musicians, and free spirits circa 1914 who come to Southern California, the America of America, to start the world over. Here is this week's installment of Sunland by Charlie Haas on The Last We Fake. Everyone loves California, but Lily loves it more. Just waiting for their streetcar, they're surrounded by flowers, some of them as bright as the ones in Panama, others in those same colors but mixed with cream, none of them half as plain and all right here's a flower as the marigolds in Berlin. If a California streetcar stop has better flowers than a German park, then a California lost and found box has better clothes than a German shop, and a California dentist's parlor has funnier magazines than a German library. Lily bets they do. Father gives her an American ten-cent piece for her streetcar fare. She trades it for a nickel and five pennies she got in New York rather than let it go. It's smaller but stronger, she thinks, as she kisses it and makes a wish. A streetcar stops, scarlet with gold lettering, and a handsome conductor with a tanned face leans out. San Bernardino, Richard says. The conductor's the first California person Lily hears speak, and it's like he's singing even though Benji translates it all in one tone. That track beside you? Change at Dominguez, and then at Los Angeles. Lily gets on the first streetcar going their way. Linda sits next to her on the curved wooden seat, wiggles into place, and says, This feels good on your ass. She leans back, opens the top buttons of her shirt, and angles to get the sun on her throat. We're all on, she says to no one, and in German, let's go. A second later, the streetcar moves out. The first part of Los Angeles is like a small town, with two-story buildings, men talking on corners, and ice wagon horses dawdling in the heat. Then they pass a field full of big machines dipping at the ground. Oil wells, Benji says and bad-smelling factories, one of them with hundreds of pigs outside. The Sunland people make faces to show how sick they feel, throttling their own necks and killing themselves with invisible knives. The only other passengers are three California men in coveralls. One scowls at them, one looks straight ahead like he's too tired to care, and the third one smiles at Linda, who smiles back so boldly he turns red and looks away. The next streets look worn down, like Lily's neighborhood in Berlin. Girls skip rope by a grocery store. People pour out of a factory and into the beer hall next door. A Negro man and lady kiss till his hat knocks hers off, while a voice down the street sings something sad. They change to a bigger streetcar. Lily gets a seat by herself, and Richard sits in front of her. In a while, Jules comes down the aisle, carrying a big flat satchel instead of his concertina, and sits next to Richard. New work? 
Richard says. Jules nods. Richard takes the satchel from him, but keeps looking out the window. They pass fields of orange trees, and then streets that are almost empty. A few houses, a church like a white box, and no trees. I like this, Richard says. The money ran out. It is nice, Jules says. They watch a fat man in short pants and a jungle hat cross an empty square, his shadow bouncing next to him like balloons. Soon there's nothing but white dirt and a few plants baking in the sun. Looks like it's the noble sagebrush for a while, Richard says. He opens Jules's satchel and pulls out a big sheet of paper. Lily moves up quietly in her seat so she can look over their shoulders. Jules's paper has bits of other paper stuck to it, half covering each other. Newspaper stories, advertisements, old train tickets, and vegetable can labels, arranged in columns that stop halfway down the page. That's so nice, Jules, Richard says. Is it? Jules says. Richard takes out another one. Wonderful, he says. But it's just old maps, letters, bills, and cookie wrappers. A face made of photography dots and fly specks sits on a scrape of yellow paint edged in pencil. The next one has hardly any colors, just five shades of faded brown paper like an old cedar drawer. Jules, Richard says, sighing. You found your way to memory, didn't you? Everyone's memory at once. Thank you, Jules says. What are they talking about, Lily thinks. They're just jumbles of paper. If those were my memories, I'd think I lived in a wastebasket. Her good feeling from this morning is wearing away. It's been half an hour of white ground with sun blasting down on it. The shadows passing over her make her dizzy. And why is it nice that someone's street ran out of money? Jules puts his pictures back in the satchel. Glad you got those done, Richard says. Gerhard says we're going to be clearing the brush for weeks. That might be a relief, Jules says. Have you talked to Gerhard, Richard says? Jules shakes his head. He's terrific. He could build us a city out of aggravation alone. Suzanne likes his wife, Jules says. Suzanne's driving me crazy, by the way. Richard looks out the window, pretending not to hear that last part. After a while, Jules stands up and goes back to where Suzanne is. Soon there are trees and telegraph poles, and in another while, they come into a town and stop. San Bernardino, the conductor calls out. Richard steps off with his valise and asks a man, Hall of Records? The man points to a building in the next block. Richard walks over to it, while the rest of them climb down into air so hot it gives Lily chills. There are horses and motor cars on the street, but almost all the people are under the awnings. The buildings are brick and brown plaster, with waves of heat coming off them as you pass. A second streetcar brings the rest of the people. Everyone crosses the street to the shade of an awning on a bank building. Herman and Dara, a skinny couple who like to sit still and stare at things, fold their legs like pretzels on the bank's porch and face a mountain outside the town. Suzanne looks at it and says, That's an arrow. Yes, Herman says. The mountain has a giant white arrowhead on it, pointing down. It's in the Book of Powerful Places, Astrid says, a sign to the Indians that this was their land. The white men kicked them out anyway, Jorgen says. If it blinked on and off, they would have believed them. Richard comes back from the Hall of Records, holding up a piece of paper. The land is ours, he says, and everyone claps. They recommended a place to stay, 
two blocks down and one over. As they set out again, Lily walks with Benji. Richard thinks father's terrific, she says. That's fine, Benji says, and points at the building. Read these signs. Hardware, Lily says in English. Courthouse? Courthouse, Benji says, like house. Jail, Lily says. What's that one? Baseball supplies, Benji reads. New York Bakery. Opera House. Here's an easy one. YMCA, Lily says, and then sees that Richard's leading them inside. The YMCA is like a school with the air already breathed. In the lobby, Richard talks to a man folding towels, then tells everyone, We're welcome to stay one night in the transient dormitory second floor. He says the best food value is in the Chinese district. Upstairs, past a chapel and a room where men are throwing Indian clubs, there's a long empty hall where the Sunlanders spread their coats on the floor for beds. When they leave for the Chinese neighborhood, it's almost dark but still hot, with spirals of bugs in the air. Lily hopes for pagodas, but it's just wooden houses with no glass in the windows. The Chinese people look like the ones in Berlin but poorer, in long shirts and black pants. One of them sees Manfred's braid, smiles, and holds up his own. They come to a house with a sign in Chinese and English. Richard reads it out loud. Duck Key Market. I need the produce experts. He waves Manfred and Tilda over to him. Lily asks Tilda, May I come too? Please do, she says. The store is dim and cool inside, smelling like mushrooms and the dirt floor. There's no counter, just tables full of plucked chickens and vegetables, carrots, pea pods, and others Lily's never seen before. The man and lady who work there take some money from Richard for two boxes of vegetables and a bag of rice. Thank you, Richard says. Is there a place we can cook? The man nods. Will you be our guests? Thank you, the man says. They go outside, where a few people look at them curiously and follow them down the street. Where from? A man asks Richard in English. Germany, Richard says. Far, the man says. Like you, Richard says. He touches his chest, then gestures around at everyone and says, Lucky. The man nods at him, smiling, with the last rays of sun on his face. Lily's California feeling starts coming back. They stop at an empty lot with a fire pit in the middle, and everyone goes to work at once. Tilda and Patrice get water from a street pump, Father and Rolf build a fire, Herman hangs lanterns in the trees, and everyone else cuts up vegetables. Mother and Jorgen stop working for a minute to watch a man play a two-stringed violin that stands up in his lap. A Chinese lady gives Rose a cigarette, and she shares it with Frederick. The Sunland people cook one of their stews, but with the new vegetables instead of squash. The Chinese people let them do it, except for criticizing once or twice, and adding a few leaves from plants in the garden at the back of the lot. When everyone served themselves, Mother pulls Lily close and says, If you don't like it, you can just eat the rice. But Lily likes it so much, she winds up licking the plate. Mother and Astrid heat water for washing dishes. Manfred and Tilda are in the garden in back, following the Chinese people, who go around pointing at plants, shading them with their hats or holding a lantern by them, and motioning with watering cans. Richard buys the leftover rice from the storeman for two dollars, the pot included. As they start off down the street, 
Tilda catches up with Patrice, shows her some packets made of folded newspaper, and says, We got seeds! We can eat those things forever! Oh, may I see those? Jules says. He looks at the packets for a second, then runs back toward the yard. In a few minutes he's back, grinning and carrying a roll of Chinese newspaper. He unties the red string around it, unrolls it, and holds it up. There are columns of black and red Chinese words, a photo of a graduating class, and advertisements for ladies' dresses and bottled medicines. All at once, Lily sees what Jules's pictures are about. Their memories, like Richard said, the way things come back to you mixed up and faded, except for the feelings. That photograph Jules used, a grainy face trying to look at you, is tied up with the sad voice Lily heard singing in Los Angeles. It always will be. I know what I'm going to do, she thinks. I'm going to learn about all these Sunland people and what they do, just like I have about Rose and Jules. I'll know a hundred things Benji doesn't, things no one can believe a child knows so well. And when Jules makes a picture with that string in it, the same red as the lanterns, I can go back to that yard any time I like. The Sunlanders walk down the street at eight the next morning, the air already hot and smelling of onion fields. Richard stops them at a house where a man is trimming hedges, his suit coat folded on a bench by the driveway. When he turns and sees them, his eyebrows don't rise, but his hedge clippers stay open and pointed upward. Excuse me, sir, Richard says in English. Is there a park nearby? The man hesitates. We look like the circus, Anna thinks. Herman and Dara are the fortune tellers, Patrice the shimmy dancer, and Tilda the strong man. Manfred's the clear-eyed weight-guesser, Joseph the medicine fraud, and Astrid something real and disconcerting. Gerhard and I must do something practical behind the scenes. The man's eyes go back to Richard with his clean clothes and calm bearing. He's the circus manager, responsible for any breakage. There's a park that way, the man says, pointing. They're having the orange show. Do you recommend it, Richard says? I suppose so. Do you like oranges? I've eaten them at Santa Monica, Richard says. I felt that Adam was had too easily. The man squints, then nods. Three blocks down. He'll talk about us, Anna thinks, at church or a cafe. That's right, people will say one day. Those were the first ones we saw. Richard thanks the man, and they walk to the park, which fills a block of downtown. There are white tents on the lawn, and a banner Benji translates. National Orange Show. Today from 10 a.m. The biggest tent's entrance is closed, but the flaps blow open in the breeze. Let's look, Richard says, and ducks inside. The others follow him and stop dead. Does everyone see a train made of oranges, Jorgen says? It's a real locomotive, covered in neat rows of halved fruit, rind side out. The boxcar behind it is armored in half grapefruits and filled with whole ones. Their smell so strong, it stings Anna's eyes. The train's on real tracks, mounted on an elevated, orange-covered platform. Across the way, there's a streetcar like the ones they rode yesterday, plated with tangerines. The passengers are dummies with orange and lemon peel hair. Jules stares at the locomotive. If artists had balls, he says. 
White women in dresses and brown men in work clothes swarm around the displays, putting the last fruits in place. A heap of blemished oranges sits on a tarpaulin. Two workers start to take it away, but Patrice smiles at one of the women, points at it and says, Mrs.? The woman looks unsure, then sees the Sunland children. All right, she says. Thank you, Patrice says. She and Tilda pick up the tarp and lead the others outside. Gerhard's coming out of a tent marked Growers Cooperative, looking shocked. The vegetables, he says. They're real. They carry the tarpaulin to the back of the park. Tilda takes a knife from her belt, cuts a bruised orange in half, squeezes the juice onto last night's rice, slices more oranges, and hands them to people to squeeze. When there's enough juice, they stir it with their hands. Tilda extends a rice-covered hand palm down like a lady in beaded gloves and says, Enchanté, to make Lily laugh. Jules and Suzanne find a rock circle with a grate, gather wood, and make a fire. When the rice is warm, people dig into it with their hands and eat. Anna's one of the last to get some, and the flavor makes her cough. The rice and oranges are in there, but the principal taste is hands. They wash the pot at a park tap, fill it with fresh water, and put it back on the fire. Manfred has a black tile he bought from the Chinese people last night, with bas-relief trees and clouds on it. He drops it into the water, and it blossoms into threads of tea. Rose shares a cup with Anna and Gerhard as she looks around the park. We've lost Jorgen and Astrid somewhere, she says. Linda, too, I think. She calls Trudy over. Dear, do you know where your parents and sister are? Trudy shakes her head. They go off, she says. In Spain, they were gone for three days. Tell me you missed them, Rose says. All right, Trudy says, and goes back to playing. When there's no more tea, they walk to a horse cart store, its windows full of shiny carriages with leather seats and fender lamps. A man in shirt sleeves opens the door, looks at them, and says, What's this now? Excuse us, Benji says in English. Farm wagons? In back, the man says, closing the door. He meets them in the yard behind the store and points to a row of sturdy new wagons with steel wheels. The Paddy Brawler, Benji translates, $25 each. Gerhard and Manfred shake their heads. The wagon man says something and Benji translates, How far are we going? A little past Russet, Gerhard says. And then, the man says, clearing the land, farming and hauling. Well, the man says, takes them to the end of the yard and points at three old carts whose beds are patched with planks. They'll take 12 bales of hay in a layer, $20 for the three. Rolf and Tilda push down on the wagon sides and rock them around. We can brace this, Rolf says, build the rims up as well. How should we paint them, Jules says, as Jorgen, Astrid, and Linda walk up, their hands full of pale green sprigs. It's white sage, Jorgen says. That whole arrowhead on the mountain is made of it. Sacred to the Celts and Indians, Astrid says. You bind it in a stick and burn it to purify. Too late for me, Patrice and Suzanne say at the same time. How about divining these carts, Jules asks. Astrid holds her sprigs of sage out toward the wagons like dowsing rods. Boats, she says, and points at the three carts in turn. Charon, trireme, ship to the sun. Done, Manfred says, and pays the salesman. 
They wheel the carts up the street to the grocery store, where the Sunlanders eat crackers from a barrel as the clerk blinks at them and fills their order. Preserves, prunes, and dried string beans. And golden syrup, Rose says, for the morning bread. It's not in the budget, Gerhard says. It should be, Rose says. It's the work ethic of the dissolute. She holds up five fingers for the clerk. Gerhard surrenders with spread hands, signaling, Do you see what I'm up against? In its time, this gesture has made Anna feel proud and embarrassed, at markets like this one, a few bakeries, and once a shoe store. That's our comedy, she thinks, how we put up with each other. Even Rose doesn't get to share that. She takes Lily to the dry goods store and tells her she can have one thing. After three floors of flannel and cast iron, Lily says, I think no thank you. When they get outside, Gerhard walks up carrying his own purchases, a compass, a T-square, and a book whose title he translates slowly. Radford's Portfolio of Building Construction, showing every detail of structure and finish for modern residences, barns and farm buildings, also for miscellaneous buildings of every kind. What does it mean, Lily says. Work for all eternity, he says. Isn't it fine? They go back to the YMCA for their luggage, fill the Chinese pot with water at a horse pump, and walk east out of town beside the streetcar tracks. A few children run after them laughing, but go home when the McAdam Road turns to dirt. In no time, the city vanishes from sight, replaced by low hills and unbroken blue sky. We're ourselves again, Anna thinks, back in nature with no one watching us. The city's nothing, a scrim of noise and smoke that dissolves as soon as you turn your back on it. Everyone's shoulders loosen, and their walk is light and rolling. Anna feels the ruts and stones underfoot as if she's taking telegraph from the earth itself. Gerhard and Hermann pull a cart with their suitcases in it, jostling it along on this trace of a road. Patrice yells, look, and everyone stops and stares back at a red fox till it bolts away into pine scrub. Then the heat comes in, falling on Anna like ten blankets. She wipes her hair from her face as her sweat dries and her walk turns unsteady. A shuffle, that's it, stay close to the ground. And then she notices everyone else is doing the same and no one's talking. A streetcar rolls past on the tracks along the road and a passenger yells something at them. Anna lifts her eyes to the pine trees on the mountain, cool and so far from reach. When she looks at the front of the crowd, people shimmer away in the undulating heat. This sun's going right through my skin, she thinks, all the way to my blood. Frida waves them to a stop. Can I put my things in a cart if I leave my valise here? She asks in short breaths. No one says no. She opens her suitcase, empties it into a cart, and drops it beside the road. Other people do the same, till the carts are full of belongings. Anna opens her valise, but thinks it's a shame to lose it. Her mother took her to Wertheim's to buy it when she was 17, and it stayed nice because she's never gone anywhere. Dara, the meditator, opens her bag and piles the contents neatly in a cart. Two pairs of underwear, a dress worn to corn silk, a little Hindu statue, and a bar of soap. She's putting her empty bag on the ground when Frederick calls, Up here! He's at the top of a hillside with five empty pieces of luggage. He leans an open suitcase on a bush, 
so its satin lining catches the sun. Dara walks up the hill and puts her bag down by the others. Jules, Frederick calls down. Help me out. Jules carries his empty trunk up the hill, puts it down, and starts arranging the luggage into a design. All at once, people have energy again, scrambling up the hill with bags for him to place. Benji dumps his trunk out into a cart, takes it up to Jules, drops it at his feet, and walks down again looking angry. I'll follow procedure, he tells Anna, but they should consider that some people might want to go home. Anna takes her suitcase to a cart and adds her things to everyone else's. There are clothes, books, collapsible easels, canvas stretchers, music scores, toe shoes, lederhosen, sun gods, stage makeup, tutus, toys, yarn, fabric, fishing rods, condoms, diapers, zodiac wheels, pots, pans, jars of screws and bolts, fetish underwear, physical culture magazines, tarot cards, pinochle decks, jewelry pliers, nerve tonics, poppy seed pods, a hookah, goat canteens, and a stuffed marmot. Frida's little boy sits on top of the heap like a king. Here and there an axe or a hoe peeks out of the jumble, giving Anna a little reassurance that there's a practical element at work. In less anxious circumstances, she'd look right past them to see what everyone's reading. She takes her suitcase up the hill, where Jules fits it into his mosaic of leather, carpet, and cardboard. Perfect, he says. They set out again. Anna shies from the sun, a white aspirin vibrating against the blue. Lily comes over to her with a drugged expression, mouth and eyes half open. She hooks her hand into the waist of Anna's skirt and stumbles beside her. Gerhard and Rolf, the two strongest, pull a cart full of belongings, but it's so heavy they have to stop and let Herman and Tilda take the next short turn. Gerhard sees Lily, wets his shirt in the water pot, wipes her head with it, and takes her free hand. Anna thinks of asking Richard to stop the group for a while, but doesn't. We can't slow things down, she thinks. We need to get those mules. Just our family could stop, but then we'd be four foreigners on our own, around people like the ones who yelled at us from the streetcar. We can't ask Richard for food when supplies are so short. Would they leave us five dollars, like they did with Paul, or less, because we're nearer our destination? At sunset, they pull the carts into a clearing by the road and eat a supper of crackers and dried string beans. Anna takes Lily's head in her lap and wipes salt from her eyes. Gerhard comes over to freshen the cloth on her forehead and asks if she's all right. Yes, Lily says. It's just my feet. Gerhard pulls her shoes and socks off, and Anna gasps. What is it? Lily says. She starts raising her head to look at her feet, but Anna gently pushes it down. Nothing, Anna says. You just have some blisters on there. Really, they're so red and swollen, she can't believe Lily hasn't screamed. Frida sees the blisters, says a silent oh, walks away and comes back holding a piece of a cactus plant. She cuts it open with a pocket knife, scrapes jelly from it, and pats it on the blisters. Now Lily does scream. Sorry, Frida says. No, keep putting it, Lily says. It's better. Aloe vera, Frida says, from the Indians. Astrid's got a book about them. Richard comes over. What's wrong, he says. Oh, those are terrible. Those are expeditionary force, Lily. He kneels next to her, strokes her forehead with the wet cloth, 
and looks up at Anna and Gerhard. We would have stopped, he says. Yes, Anna says. That lady who let us have the oranges, she thinks, the one whose look said we might let our children go hungry. I thought to hell with her, but she was right. About me, anyway. We'd have stopped for such amazing blisters, Richard tells Lily. If it's just a loathsome tropical disease, we roll right on. But these... It makes Lily smile, but he looks at Anna as he says it, as if he knows she was thinking of Paul. Just like that, hypnosis is a thing of the past. Benji comes over to watch. Anna holds Lily's hands so her own quits shaking. I have to stop wanting everyone to like me, she thinks. Look how dangerous it is. In a while, they spread their coats on the ground. Anna watches Lily fall asleep, then lies down next to her. When she closes her eyes, she sees the hill where they left their luggage. Not now, but in a few months, when the sun has turned the suitcases into tatters of wooden fabric that stick in the bushes. It doesn't look like art to people going by. It looks like trash. Anna and Lily have come to clean it up. Lily doesn't recognize it and asks what it is. Work for all eternity, Anna says. Isn't it fine? But it's blown across the hillsides and they never get it all. The next morning, Benji helps pull the carts, the sun peeling his skin from German white to Indian red. At ten o'clock, Manfred waves them to a stop at a long dirt drive, where the mailbox is painted with blobby daisies and the words, Manna Grove. This is where the mules are, he says. They walk up the drive through scrub and palm trees to a compound of buildings, all of them whitewashed stucco with tapering domes on top, like Russian churches. Even the barn and stable have them, painted in flaking gold or turquoise. It's so quiet, and the building's so faded, that Benji thinks the property might be abandoned. Then a man and woman come to meet them, carrying a tub of water with dippers in it. They're in their thirties and thin, the man in a blue tunic and violet pants, and the woman in a long white dress, both barefoot. They're smiling but overdoing it, as if their best friends from years ago have just shown up, instead of a bunch of strangers. Welcome, the man says. Nice to see you. I'm Floyd. This is Adeline. They set the tub down. Please, have some water. Have you come a long way? From Germany, Manfred says in English. I'm Manfred. I wrote to you. You know a friend of Frida, he points to her. Of course, Floyd says. Germany, my goodness. And you're on your way? We have land on the San Lorenzo stream, Manfred says. This is Richard. And Ben, Richard says. He knows the most English. He waves Benji over. Benji comes halfway. And you'd like to have mules, Adeline says, smiling. Yes, Manfred says. We have three that are wonderful. Two geldings and a molly. A molly? A girl mule that can have babies, Adeline says, and geldings are, yes, Benji says. He turns and gives a digest in German. What is the cost, father says. How about this, Floyd says. We're a little shorthanded just now. If you'll help us with hay and nectarines today and tomorrow, we'll make you a good price. Is $25 a mule all right? Manfred looks surprised. That's very good. We'll need to see them, Tilda says. Of course, Floyd says. I think you'll like each other. Do you want to rest before work? Adeline says. You must be tired. 
I think we can start now, Manfred says. Wonderful, Adeline says. Let's put your things in the longhouse. They follow her past a reflecting pool black with algae to a long white building with five blistered domes on top. Adeline opens the door and they walk into a cool, musty room with plaster walls and a soft pine floor. Thirty beds are lined up on one wall, facing a row of curtained windows. The Sunlanders put their things on the beds and go outside to work, Lily and mother in the orchard, Benji and father in the hayfield. There are a few windrows started, but most of the hay lies flat on the ground, drying with an acid green smell. Benji rakes away from everyone else till Floyd comes over and works beside him. Hello, Ben, he says. This is a fine group of people you have. Is Manfred the leader? Benji shakes his head. Richard, is he a good leader? I don't know, Benji says. He puts most things to a vote. Floyd shakes his head, says, Thank you, Ben, and rakes back the way he came. A few minutes later, Adeline comes by, leading the people from the orchard and calling, Lunch! They walk up to a two-story house with a turret and a chipped gold dome. Two long tables are under the trees, set with plates and silverware. As they sit down, three women in white robes and sandals bring food from the house. There's no meat, but everything is delicious. Melons, nectarines, salad, juice, fresh bread, potatoes, and cutlets made of nuts and beans. Everyone eats seconds, and the women bring more, smiling serenely and seeming to glide instead of walking. What's on the land you're going to, Floyd says. Any buildings? Not yet, Richard says, but Rose has designs. All that and getting crops in, Floyd says. He finally stops smiling and shakes his head. So much work. They'll have the mules, though, Adeline says. Yes, Floyd says, smiling again. Who's going to see them? I will, Tilda says. And Benji, for the English? Benji nods. Can I come, Lily says. Of course, Tilda says, before Benji can say no. We'll come get you when they're ready, Floyd says. For dessert, there are plums, grapes, verbena tea, and cherry ices. As they walk back to work, the sun floods down the hills, making the nectarine trees look lit from inside. Benji rakes hay till Floyd comes and says, Dorothea can show you the mules now, Ben. Benji finds Tilda and Lily at the orchard. They get one of their carts and take it up to the paddock, where three mules are tied to the fence. A woman in denim pants, a checked shirt, and boots is combing one of them. Hello, I'm Dorothea, she says, and points at the mules. These are Esther, Luke, and Rama. It takes Benji a minute to realize that Dorothea is one of the women who brought them lunch, looking clear-eyed now, instead of dreaming. They're clipped for summer, she says, as she unties Luke. They'll coat up again in the fall. Tilda kicks a lump of manure. It breaks open bright green. Good, she says, and goes over to Luke. His back is straight, you see, she tells Lily. The forelegs all the same, the eyes wide awake. This foot, please. She reaches for Luke's foreleg. He lifts it for her, his big eye meeting Lily's. She smiles shyly at him. Dorothea gives Luke a piece of carrot and holds his head to her shoulder. Good boy. He's sixteen hands. He can skid logs. He can plow hills where a tractor won't go. She turns to Lily. You can pet him if you like. Lily puts her hand out and Luke grazes it with his nose. Lily's mouth falls open and she strokes his neck. 
She's in love, Benji thinks. Tilda examines Luke's ears, teeth, and eyes. Dorothea hands her a horse collar. Please, Tilda says to Luke, waits for him to look at her, and slides the collar onto his neck. Which harness, please? Dorothea points to one on the fence. As Tilda goes to get it, Luke turns and looks at Benji. His eyes are calm and thoughtful, nothing like Rudy or the bored dray horses in Berlin. He wants someone smart to trade looks with, Benji thinks. I'm not being like Lily. It's just that those are the most sensible eyes I've seen in weeks. Tilda brings the harness up next to Luke and says, Over. Luke steps to the side. Tilda buckles the harness onto him, fits it to the cart's shafts, climbs on the seat, takes the reins and says, The words? Get up, Dorothea says in English. Luke walks around the paddock, pulling the cart's weight easily. Good boy, Tilda says. To stop? Easy now, Dorothea says. Luke stops walking. Lily pets him and learns how to comb his hair, while Tilda tests the other two. Three champions, she says. If you're happy with them, they'll be ready to go in the morning, Dorothea says. Is it really $25 each, Tilda says? We can add in some hay, Dorothea says. They do fine on grass, but they like a few oats if you've got them. The food at dinner is even better than lunch. Spiced mushrooms on soft rolls, three kinds of salad, and roasted sweet corn. Dorothea is one of the servers again. She nods at Benji, but she's gone back to gliding. What did you think of the mules? Floyd says. They're wonderful, Tilda says. I hate to take them from you. Well, you don't have to, Floyd says. We don't turn people away from staying here. He pauses. Did you come through San Bernardino on your way? Tilda nods. Did you see that arrowhead up on the mountain? Yes, Frederick says. Why? Because there are signs appearing now that make that arrowhead look like a fluke of nature. It is a fluke of nature, Benji says. Ben, Floyd says, smiling and shaking his head like he's a wise man. There have been 16 ages so far. When the next one starts... I want to be under these domes. How are you getting 16, Jorgen says. Benji looks at Richard, who's loading his plate with second helpings and paying no attention to the conversation. Sleep under them tonight, Floyd says. See what you think. Blessings, Adeline says. So blessed, Floyd says. After dinner, they walk up to the long house. Several beds, including Benji's, have big blue books on their pillows. There's a picture in gold ink on the cover, a snake with Hebrew letters in its teeth winding around a circle with four pyramids in it. Behind all that is a big hand with a planet at the end of each finger and a bunch of grapes for the thumb. Benji lies down on the bed and opens the book. It's densely printed on thin paper and makes no sense at all. A single paragraph refers to lymph, Adams, the Pleiades, Rome, the living dead, the fourth dimension, and the Zoroastrian horoscope. He reads the sentence, Through the law of aversion, the initiate learns to push against the third light that veils the coefficients of Ptah and falls fast asleep. The sound of the door opening wakes him in the middle of the night. No one else stirs. An old man Benji hasn't seen before comes in, with Floyd and Adeline behind him. He has big staring eyes, a long gray beard streaked with black, and a white robe. Adeline carries a straw basket. Floyd swings a censer like in church. 
The smoke smells like burning flowers. Benji pretends he's asleep with his eyes open just enough to see. They stand around the first bed, Frida's. Floyd waves the censer over her while Adeline sprinkles her with some kind of dust from the basket. Better to abide, the old man whispers. The heavenly domes, Adeline whispers. Dear nectarines, Floyd whispers. Location, location, Adeline whispers. Frida snores. Floyd and the others move on to Astrid and Jorgen's bed. Astrid sits up awake as soon as they get there. The old man stares at her. She stares back. Better to abide, the old man whispers. Puh, Astrid says, and nudges Jorgen awake. He blinks at the old man, reaches down on his side of the bed, and hands Astrid a match and some of the sage plant they brought down from the mountain. Astrid strikes the match on the bedpost, lights the sage, and waves it at the old man, staring him down as her smoke collides with his. He looks away before she does, and leads Floyd and Adeline to the next bed down. A minute later, the door opens again, and Rolf and Frederick come in. Each one has his arm around one of the two serving ladies who aren't Dorothea. Their clothes are disarranged. Rolf puts his hand on the bosom of the lady with him. She pushes it away, giggling, till she sees Floyd, Adeline, and the old man. The serving ladies stop where they are, caught in the old man's glare. They pull away from Rolf and Frederick and go over to him. One of them reaches for the dust in the basket, but Adeline shoves her hand away. The old man points at the door, and the two serving ladies go outside, looking worried. Rolf and Frederick nod hello to Floyd, as if everything's fine, take their pants off, and get into their beds. The old man leads Floyd and Adeline down the row, but they sprinkle the rest of their dust in a hurry, and don't whisper anything. Benji keeps his eyes shut when they go past him, but lies awake when they're gone. Breakfast is different from the other meals. Overripe nectarines and leftover rolls from the night before. Dorothea is the only one serving. Floyd and Adeline don't say anything. The Sunland people who were asleep last night look puzzled. Rolf, Frederick, Jorgen, and Astrid look amused. After some weak coffee, Floyd and Adeline stand up. Could you join us, please, Floyd says. Richard, Ben, and he points at Father and Manfred. Benji and the others go into the house with the turret and climb a spiral staircase to a room with colored windows. The old man with the beard is there, sitting in a high-backed chair under a picture of a moonlit city with a giant gold key hanging over it. He doesn't look as old up close, but his black-eyed stare still bothers Benji. There are boxes of those blue books on the floor. Those two girls aren't going anywhere, the old man says. You can put that out of your mind right now. Girls, Richard says. The two you tried to inveigle last night. You're not taking them. I know of no such plan, Richard says. Two years ago, I had 38 people here, the old man says. You don't know what this valley is like now. Everyone's got a farm here. The white Hindus, the new Coptics, and now the mothers of yoga. They've taken almost everyone I had. I'm sorry to hear it, Richard says. Floyd tells me you people have no beliefs. Floyd exaggerates. What are your tenets? Tell me one. Relax, Richard says. Don't tell me how to behave, sir. No, that's a tenet. We mean you no harm, believe me. About the mules, I think the price was $25 each, father says. 
That was when we thought you might stay, Adeline says. Those mules are worth, Floyd says. The old man waves him quiet. The essence of a deal is unchanging, he says. It is eternally a deal. Richard takes out his wallet. And how much for a book, he says. A book, the old man says. You don't want my book. I do, Richard says. I only had it a short time, but it looks like it covers some ground. Well, yes, the old man says, his eyes softening. It does. I can do three fifty. Richard pays him for everything, picks up a book, and leads his group down the stairs, shaking his head. They're still on yoga here, he says. When they get outside, Lily's by the reflecting pool, helping Tilda hitch the mules to the carts. There are two bales of hay in each one, along with everyone's belongings. Tilda's on the seat of Luke's cart, Manfred on Rama's, and Frida on Esther's. Lily walks next to Luke as they start down the driveway, stroking his neck and speaking endearments. They're by the palm trees when he stops so suddenly he almost throws Tilda off her seat. Manfred and Frida stop their carts. Tilda pulls Luke's lines and says, Get up! But Luke stands still and won't look at anyone. Get up, Benji says in English. Come on, Luke, down the road. I think he hasn't been passed here before, Manfred says. That's the problem sometimes. Then what do you do, Benji says. We can try some things. Take some hay and walk. Benji takes an armload of hay from the cart. It weighs more than it looks like and itches his sunburned arms. He backs down the drive away from Luke, who doesn't move. Frederick comes up behind the mule, lifting his hands to push. Don't, Tilda says, and Frederick jumps back a second before Luke kicks. Luke, it's fine, Lily says, and strokes his neck. We're going to our land. It's beautiful there. Please? Maybe if he sees the other two go, Manfred says. Maybe, Tilda says. Manfred and Frida start their carts. Everyone goes down the driveway but Luke, Tilda, Benji, and Lily. Yesterday, the mules nickered at one another and rubbed heads, but now Luke watches the others walk away without blinking. In a while, Tilda unhitches him. He stands there a minute, then turns and goes back up the drive. Tilda picks up one of the cart's shafts and looks at Benji, who takes the other. The hay makes it heavier, and it doesn't even move till they dig their feet in. After 50 meters, Benji's legs are burning. He looks over at Tilda. She nods at how hard it is and smiles to encourage him. She's more sensible than most of them, he thinks. He was scared of her at first, the way she looked like a man with bosoms, but it makes him ashamed to think of that now. When they go through a town, she hides in the middle of the group. Who knows what's been done to her for looking the way she does? He imitates her walk, bringing his bottom down and his knees up. It makes him stronger, but he can barely breathe. People are always saying someone's a real man who does a man's job. Benji wonders if anyone will say that about him. Herr Fleischer at school said not to say curl because it's slang, like a guy in English. Of course we should take care with German, Benji thinks, but to have a word that spares you from specifying man or boy. How often is a language so thoughtful? The others are waiting under a scorched juniper by the mailbox. Astrid and Jorgen sit in the dust, reading the book Richard bought from the old man. Benji lets go of the cart, shakes hands with Tilda, and bends over to catch his breath. That was all right, he thinks. I'm stronger than I know. A little, anyway.
they turn onto the road, going east. For a while, Lily walks with her head down, inconsolable about losing Luke, but then Rama walks up next to her. In half an hour, she's transferred her affections to him entirely, petting his face and calling him her sweet boy, till Benji thinks Luke got out of this just in time. Charlie Haas's screenwriting credits include Over the Edge, Tex, Gremlins 2, and Matinee. His journalism has appeared in The New Yorker, Esquire, New West, The Three Penny Review, and Wet, the magazine of gourmet bathing, along with many other journals. Haas's previous novel, The Enthusiast, was published by Harper Perennial in 2009. Follow his Twitter feed at Charlie underscore Haas. Intro music is from the song Slow, performed by Sally Dworsky, written by Sally Dworsky and Chris Hickey, available on iTunes, Spotify, Apple Music, and all other streaming platforms. Closing theme songs are Lullaby of Sunland, composed and performed by Ben Rifkin, and Trapeze Dress, composed and performed by Dean Chamberlain. Learn more about Dean Chamberlain and find Code Blue miscellany and touring dates by visiting therealcodeblue.com. Podcast art by Ryan Longnecker. Please take a moment to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you listen worldwide. Also be sure to like and explore The Last We Fake Facebook page where you can find other items of interest including news, teasers, and podcast swag. Novel or short story submissions, as well as other inquiries, can be emailed through the contact page at www.alanrifkin.com. We hope you enjoyed this edition of The Last Week.